we stand with the Palawa and Bacana of Luchawita, along with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples Australia-wide. We wish to firmly acknowledge that Aboriginal and Torres Strait sovereignty was never ceded. It was, and always will be, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land. Australia is the only settler colonial state which does not formally recognise the dispossession caused by colonialism. Carried by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the land and sea which we call home is the world's oldest continuing living culture, dating back to over 65,000 years. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples were the first artists, scientists, creators, storytellers and so much more. Today, and always, we acknowledge and honour the depth and richness of these cultures. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices will never be silenced. We at Twix will work harder to not only stand alongside, but to amplify Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices. And we invite you, the listener, to do so as well. We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're tuned into That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show bringing you independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths, and medicine from Luchuila, Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station. So head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palo and Pakana. We're recording here on Luchuida, but as we are a podcast, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here, I pay my respects to elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined today by my co-host Ryan Smith and excitingly we've gone on a little adventure from our usual studio back to the studio where we used to record weekly with Dr Neve Chapman, our past weekly host who you would have heard from last year and in previous years. And in the theme of bringing back past voices to the show, we're actually going to have someone who was in the very second episode way, way, way back at the beginning of Twix and is a long-term friend friend of the show, a personal friend of mine, someone I admire very much, an amazing science communicator. And I'm going to pass on over to Ryan to tell us who she is and why she's so awesome. Thanks, Ollie. Leela Landowski is a neuroscientist, lecturer and all-out superstar of the medical science world. She's delivered a TEDx talk with nearly 2 million views. She regularly presents on the ABC and other commercial networks as a science communicator and was a finalist for the Tasmanian Australian of the Year in 2016. She's a director for the Australian Society of Medical Research and Epilepsy Tasmania and she was one of three finalists for the 2023 Celestino Eureka Prize for Promoting Understanding of Science. Leela, welcome to the show. We've barely scratched the surface with that introduction of what you do because you do so many amazing things but what are you currently involved with? Thank you for that beautiful introduction. Um, Gosh I feel like I've got my hand in a lot of different pies but you know I'm very busy spending time teaching the next generation of healthcare professionals which I absolutely love because I think my one of my favorite moments is when you are talking about something about the human body and you can just see this moment where the student, it's clicked, you know, and they 
finally get this concept. So I'm doing a lot of that, which I absolutely love. Um, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a director of the Australian Society for Medical Research. So I'm doing a lot of advocacy work, trying to, I guess, promote the importance of funding, the funding issues we have in um, health and medical research, because we are at a really critical juncture. There's been a, you know, we haven't had enough funding for a very long time and the costs of research is going up. So yeah, I really want to be able to spread that message as well. And one of the things that I also really love doing is, I guess, tricking people into learning more about science through communicating on the radio and on TV. What are the sort of ways that you trick people into learning? <laughs> um, well, I guess it's, it comes down to communicating things about, you know, there might be a new research paper that's come out, which you know, you look at it and it's full of jargon, it's full of really complex topics that, you know, most people looking at it would just, it's impenetrable, you can't really make sense of it. But actually, I guess, teasing apart and explaining just in general terms about what that is and how that might allow people to make better decisions in their lives or, or think about things differently or do things differently, um, that's really what it's about. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that kind of juncture between teaching real science but actually making it understandable and adaptable to our everyday lives I mean you touch on it very heavily in your TED talk so much so that I actually used it when I was studying for my final exams this year but do you ever find that it's quite difficult to to distill all of the actual science to people and tell them something that's both accurate but also understandable? Yeah I think that's a big challenge that a lot of people who are communicating science deal with it's that you know we know stuff in so much detail and we want to include all of that nuance but at the end of the day the nuance is often what would confuse many people and if that is not going to help people understand the general message of the research or help them apply it to their own lives then I guess we want to avoid that information so it's about generalizing things in a way that makes it make sense but also you know I guess being accurate in in terms of being cautious about you know what that data might mean you know instead of saying things definitively we might say um, it increases the risk of something rather than saying it causes something so we just be careful about the words that we use and I think when we do that and we're, in terms of when we're communicating science, that's a great way of kind of overcoming these concerns that us as scientists often have when it comes to communicating the details in science. And speaking of being cautious, I work with seabirds. So if I said the wrong thing about a penguin, in theory, it's not going to affect anyone too badly or it's not going to you know, cause someone to have an accident. But what is the responsibility or how does it feel to have the responsibility of sharing science that's to do with the human body? Because misinformation with the human body, that could have some severe consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And we see this in the media, in social media all the time. You know, people have miscommunicated or misinterpreted um, a research study. And I think that's all the more reason why we should we as scientists should be using our voice and our knowledge to communicate that because at the end of the day, if we as the makers of that science or, do, or the doers of that research, if we're not communicating that message, other people will and they might not get that right. Do you see people that are now coming in are much more eager to get engaged with that communication from the beginning? Yeah, definitely, definitely, um, which I think is a gift because it means that we are going to have the next generation of scientists or healthcare professionals being willing to share that knowledge in a way that makes sense to the broader public. Yeah, something that I've found 
really interesting this year as I've commenced studying again is I never actually learnt how to properly study. And I know it sounds really silly that I've already done a degree and it should just be natural to me. But until I actually started looking at some of the science behind how we're supposed to study best and how to efficiently study, like it's just something that I know in your TED talk, you start off with the expression that you're angry, that you didn't know this as a, as a young person. Can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, the tricky thing is that we don't get taught how to learn. We just kind of expect it to happen. And I think one of the awesome things about research, particularly in the neurosciences, is that we are learning more and more about how to do that better. And I guess some of the things that I touched on in that TED Talk are, I guess, six critical ingredients that we can use to help us learn better. Attention, alertness, sleep, repetition, breaks and mistakes. And, I mean, that's a separate talk explaining why those six different things are useful, which I could expand on, but I don't know if we have time to do that. Well, speaking of breaks, we actually might head into our first one. So, listeners, stay with us for part two as we delve into Leela's history a little bit more and how she ended up where she is today. Welcome back to That's What I Call Science. My name's Ryan Smith and I'm joined by our weekly host, Ollie Dove, as well as our amazing guest today, Dr. Leela Landowski. So Leela, I just want to go back to the very beginning. When you were coming through school, what convinced you to study medical research? Mm, I remember being in primary school and every year in primary school that always have one particular day where they'd ask you to think about your career in the future and what you wanted to do. And I didn't have an answer and I couldn't even be creative about it. Like I couldn't like lie or make something up. So I just would tell the teacher, I don't know. And I had to leave it at that. I couldn't make anything up, couldn't lie. And then eventually I was on a grade four school camp and we went, some of us went fishing and I went fishing and I caught my first fish. And I just remember like holding this fish in my hands and it had this like disgusting slime all over it. And it was like, you know, sticking to my hands. It was like webbing between my fingers. And I remember looking at it and thinking, well, A, this is really cool. And B, I'd heard of things like they'd been, they'd been advertising shark liver oil capsules or something like that. And apparently it was really good for your health. And I was like, yeah, wouldn't it be really cool if I found a fish extract one day? And could that help people? And I really, from that moment, I stuck with that really maybe quite naive idea that I wanted to help, you know, work in drug development and find cures from fish. And so I really stuck with that idea until I went to uni. In fact, when I went to uni, I didn't go to any, you know, career advisors day because I was just like, yep, um, I'm going to do a degree in Bachelor of Marine Science, I think, and I'll, and I'll major in biochemistry and I can learn about fish and I can learn about biochemistry and, you know, that's how I can make cures from fish. But, you know... I didn't have anyone in my life who could guide me in my career path. And I got to uni and I realised that there's a new degree called the Bachelor of Medical Research. And I was like, well, that's really what I should be doing. That's, that's the way that's going to help me learn about the human body and learn about research and learn about how to, you know, bring those ideas together and, and develop therapies. 
So yeah, I mean, that's really how I ended up in medical research. And I never planned to do neuroscience. In fact, I found neuroscience quite boring. As a subject, it's quite dry. And there wasn't really, you know, it's like learning a lot of neuroanatomy. But when I was sitting in one of the lectures, one of the neuroscientists that was working um, at the university at the time, he was explaining his research and showing some data. And I remember looking at it and I, I kind of had a different way of interpreting the data that he hadn't shown us. And so after the lecture, I came up and talked to him and I was like, oh, hey, Roger, um, you know, I think we could maybe interpret the data this way. And I know that this neuroscientist, Lisa, she has the skills to for me to, you know, test this hypothesis, you know, in my honours year, can I then test this hypothesis and see whether it works? So that's really how I ended up in neuroscience, completely by accident. Yeah, I ended up doing the research and the hypothesis was right. Congratulations. I was just listening to that and thinking, wow, that is the bravest thing I've ever heard. I think I was, I'm still too terrified to talk to people when they give lectures, but to go off and be like, can I test this? Because I think this actually might be an avenue that we should go down is... That's pretty awesome. And actually tapping into something that you mentioned in the first section, not that the researcher who gave the talk had made a mistake, but there was just something new to look at there. But you mentioned that mistakes can help us learn, actually. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it works? Yeah, I would love to. You know when you make a mistake and you just feel you feel a bit gross, you feel anxious, you know, your heart starts racing, you just feel a bit tense. Um, there's a biological reason for that. So basically you're releasing a lot of neuromodulators and neurotransmitters and hormones that are essentially making your body pay attention. It's doing that, it's releasing those hormones to make you pay attention because you've made a mistake. So that way you can pay attention and learn how to do the thing correctly. So when you feel that anxiety after you make a mistake, it's really your body's way and your brain's way of cueing you to this issue that you've just encountered, making you pay attention so you can learn how to do it correctly. And then when you actually go and do the thing correctly, it releases things like dopamine, which makes you learn that thing. It helps that neuroplasticity, that knowledge be consolidated, right? So making mistakes is like the best thing that we can do for learning. But in society, we've become so transfixed that mistakes are bad, but mistakes are the best. Like, just think about any time in your life where you've actually done, you've made a mistake. You remember that moment, right? And you're not going to do that thing again. And I think that's a really great lesson to us and, I mean, to remind us that mistakes are our brain's way of helping us be better. So which part of the brain do you actually study, Leela? Tricky question because I'm not really in the lab anymore. But, I mean, I could tell you about my favourite part of the brain. So... The hippocampus, I think, is probably my favourite. And that's the part of the brain that's involved in learning and memory and also actually just keeping track of where, where you are in space and time, like where you are in a room. And it's a bit like a diary. So if I was to ask you what you were doing before listening to this, that's your hippocampus, that's recalling that information. And the tricky thing is, is the hippocampus is only keeping that information there for the fairly short term and it's not until we actually go to sleep that all of that short-term knowledge that's stored in your hippocampus actually gets put into the long-term storage. So it basically gets pushed out into other parts of the cortex, the surface of your brain, and turned into long-term memories. So if you don't sleep, all of that short-term knowledge stored in your hippocampus just is eroded away, 
which again, I guess, brings us to this concept of, of learning and studying. Like how many times do we cram for an exam and then not sleep? Like you stay up all night studying, you do the exam and maybe you did okay on the exam, but now you like think back and it's like, I actually can't remember any of that knowledge. Like I can't remember how I aced that exam. And that's because you didn't sleep. So that knowledge never got pushed into that long-term memory storage bank. I actually always struggled with exams ever from the age of 18. Every exam period, except for the very last one of my master's degree, I did worse on than expected. And I found it so frustrating because I'd worked so hard during the semester. And then I'd see friends cram, as you say, the night before and do much better. And I'd be like, this just doesn't really seem like a fair way of um, teaching people. This isn't really judging us equally. Um, But taking, obviously... You mentioned rats and mice and my mind went, oh, zoology. Um, I know a lot of the work in neuroscience is done on them. Are their brains really similar to ours then? Like, so do they have a hippocampus that we can study and that's why they're used? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some obvious differences between them, <laughs> but there's also a lot of similarities. And even though there are these differences, they give us some really important clues as to how our own brains function. So, Lily, you mentioned toward the beginning of the show that you found neuroscience quite boring. What was it that made it interesting to you now? Being able to apply it to your life. Like, it's that applied knowledge and being able to use it to your advantage or to your friends. So your friends can use it to their advantage as well. And I think that's really cool. Stay with us, listeners, as we'll go to a short break. But afterwards, we're going to hear more from Leela. Welcome back, listeners. You're tuned into That's What I Call Science. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brian Smith, and our special guest, Dr. Leela Landowski. Now, we've been talking all about the brain, about neuroscience, about, you know, what's happening up there. But I want to take a moment and step out of the brain into the world and how you're involved in science communication because it's no secret that that's what I call science are big fans of SciComm and bringing information to the people but in recent years what was a particular science communication highlight for you? I think it would have to be working with Robin Williams the man the myth the legend at the AVC yeah you know the creator of the science show he has just this breadth of knowledge and experience and just the way he explains how to do things, like things you don't even think about, you know, that people can hear in your voice that you're smiling, for example. You can hear the way that your voice changes. And as you can tell, I'm doing it right now. And, you know, I think just being able to have that time with him. So a few years ago, I was part of ABC's top five science scholars. And that's where I first worked closely with him, but I had interacted with him in the past and done a few um, pieces for his science show on the ABC. So, yeah, I think that would be it. Do you feel from the public that you're getting more engagement coming from that angle as well? People are wanting to know more. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, people are hungry for interesting knowledge. And think also people are more conscious about the source of that knowledge as well you know they don't just want to hear it from some influencer who doesn't actually work in that area of you know that field 
so I definitely see more people looking to these, you know, scientists and, and other healthcare professionals for that source of information. Leela, I know that you had a viral video where you uh, took a video of some growth cones in a Petri dish and a couple of people have used that video and despite the fact that they had good intentions, they communicated something that actually wasn't going on. So in response to instances like that, is it really important that the science we are communicating is still accurate? I really think so. And maybe that particular example, no one was going to be harmed by that misinformation At the same time, it's perpetuating misinformation and because it was incredible, like it's a really viral video and I think that particular chap had, you know, he had it shared like 50 million times or something ridiculous, then that's a lot of people learning the wrong thing. But it only seems to go viral when other people share it, not when I share it. (laughs) So that's something that you've communicated via a video and but you also do a lot in person and live. Given that you have a lot of experience doing it, do you still get nervous before you go on stage? Yeah, absolutely. I always used to have stage fright. And in fact, when I was maybe in grade seven or, you know, when I was starting to think about how my career as a future scientist that finds cures from fish would, how that career would look, I was like, well, people like David Attenborough, they have to be able to communicate that message and me not having any other examples of scientists in my life or anyone in that showing any kind of leadership about what a scientist looks like, I was like, well, I have to learn how to communicate science. So, you know, I remember I was like, how am I going to develop this skill when I hate it so much, when I'm so bad at it? So I remember trying out for the debating team and I didn't get in because I was literally the worst person. I didn't even get in. I tried again the next year. Didn't get in, but then someone dropped out, so I did eventually get in. So, you know, I was able to practice that skill by putting me in those situations that I really was really uncomfortable in and then just really pushing myself to be in those situations, giving talks, always trying to be the spokesperson because I know at the end of the day that would make me better at my future job that doesn't exist yet. (laughs) But it was a very conscious process And it was very much going against the grain of what my body wanted to do, which was not be on the stage. Um, So that anxiety has now mostly gone away. But at the same time, gosh, the the amount of exposures that I've had to get to that experience has been a lot. And I think an important thing to mention is everyone's response to stress is different and You know, there's research now that shows that people from a lower socioeconomic background experience more of this sense of social threat in situations where they're giving a public talk. So they release about three times as much of the stress hormone cortisol. So learning that, it made me realise, okay, I come from a low socioeconomic background. I grew up in housing department, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And what was happening is my body was releasing way more of this cortisol, which was why I was having these really strong body responses. So learning that also helped me get over a lot of that stress with public speaking. You know, it's just my body's way of trying to help me perform better. It's not anything wrong with me. It's just reframing what that stress response actually was. Wow, when you... There's so much that happens within us that is affecting what we're doing that we're not even aware of. But 
say I'm about to go on stage and I'm feeling anxious and I'm nervous. Is there any tip or tricks to do with the brain that could help calm me before I go on? Yeah, definitely. I think the first thing is to reframe what that stress response is, like remind yourself that your heart racing and your hands being sweaty and your breathing increasing, that is just your body's way of preparing you to deal with that challenge, which is giving a talk. You know, that acute stress response, that short-term stress response is designed by our body to help us perform better. It'll help us run away faster from a line. It'll help us perform better in a test. It'll help us do better at public speaking, but we actually have to be aware that it's a positive thing. Otherwise, we won't experience those positive benefits. Um, And one of the other ones that is really popular is the physiological sigh. And the neuroscientist and really great science communicator, Professor Andrew Huberman, has really popularised this in recent times. And it's just this breathing technique that essentially, well, it's actually just turning down that stress response and making your heart rate go down. And the way we do that is by two inhales and then a really long exhale. And it has to be two inhales because the second inhale is basically activating a particular part of the brain relevant. But then the exhale also needs to be really long as well because it needs to be that pattern in order for it to work. So you do two inhales and a long exhale. So it's like this. And that second inhale is just to fully fill up your lungs, just to make sure that every little bit is full. And yeah, I already feel calmer again now. Very, very chill. (laughs) Lily, you mentioned finding a perfect scientist. Do you think that you've either become that perfect scientist or do you think you've ever found a perfect scientist? We're all human. Humans are flawed. Humans make mistakes. I I don't think it exists. But I think we can all aspire to be the best versions of ourselves and do the best science we can. That is a wonderful way to end our episode because you're absolutely right. We are all human. We're all going to be flawed, but doing the best that we can is all we can ask of ourselves. So thank you so much for being with us today, Leela. It was wonderful to talk to you. And thank you everyone for listening. This was part four of our Eureka mini series and it's our last fresh content of the 2023 season. And what a year it's been for That's What I Call Science. We uh, we announced a few weeks ago on our socials that we're now a not-for-profit company, STEM Communicators Australia Limited. So look out for more information about them next year. And I was so pleased that we could end the year with you today, Leela. So thank you for tuning in today, listeners, to That's what I call science. We love bringing you STEM related content and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you loved the episode today, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even LinkedIn. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'd like to say a huge thank you to my co-host Ryan Smith for today and our expert guest, Dr. Leela Landowski. So from the three of us, we hope you all have a wonderful week and a happy new year. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. That's What I Call Science is brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find the show at all major podcast streaming services and find out more about us from our social media channels. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all the exciting science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine research in Lutrita, Tasmania. 
This show is supported and strengthened by Edge Radio. So head over to edgeradio.org.au for more information about them. Thanks for tuning in today, and may your week be stemtastic.